Hello and welcome to episode 45.5 of Herpetological Highlights. This is like a special bonus episode kind of thing um, because we had some questions to answer and uh, it kind of drew our attention to the fact that there were some things we needed to talk about, or didn't need to talk about, but it would be nice to talk about that we mm. hadn't talked about already. So um, I'm Tom Major. <laughs> what ben, are these things? <laughs> Ben's trying to interject, I won't let him. And joining me is... Joining me? Co-hosting with me, as usual, is Ben Marshall. He's not joining me. He's part of the scenery, so... Well, also, I'm not even joining you because I'm on the other side of the world. Yeah, and we're experimenting today with um, having our video on Skype turned on while we talk to each other. And it's quite nice. I can see I've Ben's... Actually got, I've, I've actually got your face covered in notes at the moment. Oh. <laughs> there we it's go. just me. I'm just voyeuring <laughs> you. <laughs> That's fine. It's fine by no, it's me. Fixed. It's all right. It's all right. I'm watching you. Yeah, so um, it's quite nice. I've got Ben's little face in the corner of my screen, which is bringing me joy. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the whole point of this episode really was because we've had some questions from our patrons with inquiring minds. Um, as per usual, like some seriously excellent questions that got us thinking a lot about things I don't think we'd really ever given much thought to before, which is quite a nice position to be in um so yeah we had a few questions and some of them pertain to like who we actually are and we realized we've never really gone into detail about our kind of entry into the world of science before we've gone into it on another podcast when we were on um morelia python radio Mm. um those guys interviewed us which was really really fun and we talked a lot about our kind of origin stories so to speak when we were on that podcast um but we haven't really done it on here, and so if you don't listen to the other one, which if you're interested in keeping reptiles, you should, because it is very good, and they're really wicked guys. But for our listeners, we thought it was high time we did it on our own podcast, so here we yeah, are. Yeah, we want, yeah, keep it slightly separate from the usual episodes, so you're not, you know, if you don't care about us, you can just skip on. Yeah, so if you don't want to hear about us chit-chatting or answering people's questions... Go and listen to something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, there'll be another episode next week, so you'll be, you'll be sorted. You'll be gone. Yeah. And the next one is going to be quite cool as well. So, should we divulge what the next one's about or keep it top secret? You can't remember. <laughs> I can see on his face he hasn't got a clue. This is the advantage of being on the oh, video. <laughs> yes, no, I do remember. Yeah. Yeah, it's about musk turtles. Yes, yeah, it's going to be cool, yeah. Spat Turtles, which is another patron-selected choice. So, yeah, it's about some stinky turtles, which will be fun. They're filthy swamp dwellers as well, which we always like. Um, <sighs> you, you never go wrong with looking at an animal that lives in a swamp. No, they just, they just, I think you just have to have a certain way about you, a certain sort of fortitude of character to live in a swamp. So it's always yeah. interesting to read about them. Um, so before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode uh i just want to mention that we've got a competition running at the moment to win a t-shirt so if you haven't already get on to either our facebook or our twitter pages the um the competitions are pinned on both of those places and uh either give us a like and a share or a retweet and a follow on twitter and um yeah you could be in with a chance of winning a really sweet t-shirt with not one not two but three king cobras on it and mm. uh yeah a male, it seems like a lot of people and a neonate well there you go <laughs> all three bases covered <laughs> if, if that matters <laughs> yeah the neonate's cool they're they're all bandy mm. um but yeah like lots of people have already been sharing it so um get on there and yeah throw your name in the hat and then if you don't win 
you can buy one for like 12 pounds anyway so just do that if everyone did that we'd be rich so that'd be great <laughs> I, I i don't think we'd be rich no but we'd be no. temporarily comfortable <laughs> uh yeah so without further ado what should we do first should we do our chit chat about us and then the questions i think it might be better that way around or if you've got strong feelings otherwise uh i don't have strong feelings either way Okay, so should I go first? Yeah, yeah, if you okay. like. Okay, well, well, let's, t- let's t- stay. who asked the question first of all? Uh, Jennifer Sager. Cool. So, yeah, we had a question from Jennifer, which was basically broadly sort of, um, well, there's a few different questions, but it was mainly like, you know, why, why are you interested in reptiles and um, sort of, you know, wh- how did you get interested? Where did it all start? Wh- where have you studied? All that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean... For me, at least, I, I, I mean, I can pick, I know exactly when I got interested in snakes um, for the first time. And I was five years old. I was a little, little wee Tom. And uh, yeah, I got taken to a garden center by my grandparents and someone there elected to put a snake around my neck. And I was like, it was a corn snake. <laughs> they didn't They didn't work at the garden centre. They were just wandering around with a bag of snakes. Who was that snake the man? Yeah. <laughs> Come along, um, Tom, before he gets Anyway, it. yeah. This random guy just lassoed me with a snake. No, it was nice. Um, anyway, I was like, at first I was scared. But then I realised that snakes were just incredible. So, I was, you know, from that point on, I was pretty much just hooked on snakes. And, um, yeah, as a little kid, I, well, from that kind of first encounter with a snake, I was pretty hooked. And then, well, to put it in context, I think like both my parents are big into animals as well. Like I used to go fishing with my dad and stuff like that. My dad always had an aquarium at home. So I was always quite interested in fish. And I still have like probably more than a normal person's obsession with fish from that. Um, (laughs) But I then kind of, well, I used to go around like reptile shops and stuff like that with my mum a lot, which was always something to be excited about on the weekend. So I'd go and like see reptiles and shops. And then eventually by the time I was 10, I'd badgered my mum enough and my dad. And um, I got a pet corn snake, which was awesome. And so then I kept snakes throughout my teenage years. Um, so that definitely sort of kept the interest alive. And it start, kind of started to develop, I guess, a bit more scientifically then. Um, and I used to go to a local reptile club, which was really really good it was called the Thames and Chilton Reptile Society Reptile Club and it actually is still going um but I went there and that was just an opportunity to mix with other people and like adults as well um my mum always came with me which is very patient of her but I think she's my mum's actually quite interested in snakes as well we kind of like went on a snake journey together because I was a little kid and then yeah through going to this reptile society and just like talking about snakes with other people it just kind of like grew and grew and grew and then I kind of got into my late teenage years and went off snakes a bit, just had like other interests. And then I went to university, and this is where our kind of stories are a little bit more similar. Studied geography at university, mm. um, just didn't get the grades for biology. I actually didn't really like doing biology at school, didn't really... Um, yeah. I just I just wasn't yeah. committed enough to school as a teenager, basically. I just couldn't really be bothered with it. Um, well, biology... For me, it was so heavily um, geared towards human biology and like medical stuff. Yeah, it was so boring. I, it was like I, oh, I couldn't stand it. It was like physiology of a human being and yeah. the cell. Um, yeah, it was just like yeah, it was bad, bad, bad. Um, so yeah, I didn't get didn't do biology, but 
obviously like in the background I was still like really really interested in snakes and um my mum bless her looked after all my snakes while I was away at uni which is like incredibly generous so that when I finished I came out and I moved into my own place and um got my snakes back so then snakes were back in my life when traveling and then while I was traveling I actually saw my first wild venomous snake in Borneo uh, which was insane I saw a um Tropidolamus subannulatus which is a green pit viper in Borneo which will be relevant later on but that had quite a big impact on me <laughs> uh and then when we came back, um, decided to do a master's degree where I focused on ecology. Um, so I went to Exeter to study that. Um, I know, Ben, you've heard about this umpteen times. Uh, oh, but yes, what? My, my chameleon project. No, I <laughs> don't tell, know anything about this. <laughs> talk about chameleons to anyone that will listen. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I ended up at Exeter University studying uh, colour change in chameleons with... Um, Dr. Lucy Hawkes and Dr. Martin Stevens and Dr. Jan Stapala. And that was awesome. Um, we had like a temperature controlled lab and we were putting the chameleons in uh, different colored environments and different patterned environments and trying to see if they would match their surroundings over time with some quite high tech uh, photography equipment. Um, unfortunately, they didn't match their surroundings, but I guess that's kind of interesting in and of itself. Um, Definitely. And we are, yeah, yeah we're, we're, I mean, to be honest, it's been like however many, three, three years since then, but we're still in the process. Hopefully that'll be a publication at some point soon. Um, but yeah, that was, I mean, that was just awesome. And then I came out of that and um, went to Thailand, which is where Ben and I met. Um, I mean, that was ace. We, uh, so I was out there, I was out there for a different reason for Ben. Ben will get into his reason. But um, yeah, I was looking at green pit viper spatial ecology. So there's a guy called Kurt Barnes, who's now a PhD student, um, yep. still studying green pit vipers. Doing more viper stuff, yeah. Yeah, he's the viper guy. Uh, but yeah, so he, he had me on as a volunteer for his master's research. And we were basically just in the jungles. Well, not even so much jungles, but the kind of partly in the jungle, partly in agricultural areas of Dry Thailand. Dry tropical forest. Dry tropical forest. Mm. And yeah... Um, but to be honest, mostly we were in sort of riverbeds surrounding... <laughs> bits of scrubland. Yeah, bits of scrub. Anywhere we could see <laughs> water margins. on Google Maps, we'd be like, oh, let's go see where's a pit viper. Small so ponds. Then, yeah. So then we were catching the pit vipers, putting radio transmitters in them. And this is a species from... Um, what's well, not Tremorosaurus. What is it now? It's changed. Cryptelotrops. It was Cryptelotrops albolabris and Cryptelotrops macrops. So the white-lipped pit viper and the big-eyed pit viper. And yeah, we were just tracking them in the jungle, learning about their movements. Um, it was awesome. So yeah, that, I mean, that for me was my first proper experience of like reptile field work and it was ace. And so um, after six months of doing that, saw so many cool snakes, you know, king cobras, crates, um, pythons, you name it, you know, loads so and loads of vipers. Cylindrophus, yes. Cylindrophus, rufus. Some snakes. Yeah. Cylindrophus, oh. though, they're probably one of the funniest snakes I've ever seen. It's just a sausage with a face. Um, <laughs> and an orange butt. Yeah, and an orange butt, which it'll flash to you if it's upset. Um, but yeah, so did lots of that in Thailand. And then when I returned, I wanted to do a PhD because I realized that, you know, you can kind of study snakes and make a thing of it. But um, getting a PhD was really hard, so I worked. It was a battle. It is, it's I mean, hard, it, man. Yeah. It's um, with it though, to be fair. I mean, that was a long time of uh, build-up, really, of uncertainty. Yeah, it was. It took a good couple of years. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I still had snakes in the interim. I was working as a park ranger and there were snakes at the park I was at, which was cool. So I got to see adders in the spring and that kind of like mm-hmm. <laughs> gave me something to do, which was vaguely yeah. snake related. And in fairness, being a park ranger was a really cool job as well. So it wasn't all bad. Um, it was actually awesome that, that year. But then, um, yeah, eventually got this PhD. Um, so now I'm studying Escalapian snakes, which is Zaminus longissimus. And they are a non-native species in the UK. They're actually the only species of snake in the UK, which shouldn't technically be here. Um, and they were brought over by accident from Italy. Well, they were brought over on purpose. Uh, and then they were accidentally released in and around the grounds of the Welsh Mountain Zoo, which is in far northwest Wales, which is where my fieldwork site is, and where Bangor University is, which is where I study. And um, yeah, essentially in the 1960s, one or a few of these snakes escaped from the zoo. Well, the zoo director used to be a reptile importer. It used to supply snakes to the trade and also to other zoos, I think. And they got out um, by accident. And then one day the head of the zoo found a snake crawling across his driveway and was like, that's an unusual grass snake. Because <laughs> they, they do look a bit like grass snakes when they're babies because they have the yellow collar. Um, and actually they have been mistaken for grass snakes by a famous herpetologist who will remain unnamed. <laughs> uh, but that's quite a funny story as well. But um, yeah, like... When are you expecting to see grass snake and or adder? And you mm. see something that looks vaguely like a grass snake, you're not going to think twice. No. With all that but, context, you're not going to suddenly second guess yourself. Yeah, no, but the context was actually, hey, I found this snake and it really, really, really doesn't look like a grass snake. What do you think it is? Oh, it's a grass snake. And it definitely, I mean, once you've seen both oh. next to each other, they're definitely different. Um, oh, well. But yeah, they're, they're really cool snakes. They're, um, they're colubrids, so they're non-venomous. They're thought to be um, semi-arboreal. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't, mate. You can't join those two dots together, can you? Colubrid but non-venomous. Or so non-venomous. But non-venomous, okay, but so non-venomous. Okay, give me a venomous colubrid. Well, aren't boomslangs venomous? Aren't Are they colubrids? venomous? Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, no, I and, take and, point. And not until, you know, recently, you, all your raftophis. Yeah, no, you're, 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 you're actually right. Yeah. So, no, they are colubrids and non-venomous, or even but non-venomous. Um, but they mostly eat birds, uh, small mammals, that kind of stuff. So they're, they're pretty chill. Um, they're not attacking puppies, which is what has been re- reported in the media. Um, but yeah, they're just an interesting snake, and the, the focus of my PhD what? is. Yeah, do you not remember that? That came out in it was like the Daily Star or the Sun or something like that. And they because there's another population, there's another population in London and the yeah. banks of the Regent's Canal, um, completely separate population. They um, entered England by a completely separate means. Um, those ones were released from like an educational facility. Uh, I think there was like six or seven released, and that was a bit later. I think that was in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there was news reports about these crazy snakes living on roofs. They could kill a baby, all this mad stuff, which of course isn't, isn't true. I mean, yeah, maybe, I mean, I don't know. I mean, most animals could probably kill a baby if they set their mind to it, but why would they? Um, (laughs) There's a snake on the roof. It's going after my baby who's also on the roof. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's just bonkers. But um, yeah, they're just, you know, they grow to about, I don't know. 1.2, 1.3 meters, so maybe five feet for those of you that like feet. 
they're 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 not they're not immediately a bedazzling snake. I would say they're kind of like brown on top, yellow underneath. But they do have a charm about them. They got nice, cute faces, and um, <laughs> they got little white flecks on the back. So they're they're nice looking snakes. But yeah, the focus of my PhD is doing a kind of mark recapture study. So we're trying to estimate, you know, the population, demographics, uh, survival, that kind of stuff. And then alongside that, we're doing, or we're hoping, well, we're going to, should say, start a radio telemetry project this year. So we're going to be putting radio transmitters inside them, tracking them every day, learning about their movements, much like I was doing in Thailand with the Vipers. And then uh, the third element is the kind of um, genetic variability part, which is... Mm. So genetic variabilities, like, you know, genetic bottlenecking as a result of being an introduced population, we're going to try and understand kind of um, to what extent they are a genetically varied population and, you know, how interrelated they all are and try and get a bit of a better handle on whether or not they could expand based on their genetic capabilities. So, um, yeah, that's kind of it rolled into one. It's The title is something along the lines of a an impact what is it a preemptive integrated impact assessment of an introduced snake in north wales so that kind of you got some nice buzzwords in there yeah you got some jargon in there well that was that was the title when it needed to get funded so yeah that's kind of the cynical <laughs> title of it but yeah that's um impact assessment yeah by and large that's me so uh, i've kind of always be a large impact on uh, babies sort of like climbing <laughs> all those yeah, and roof some babies of the weaker dog breeds yeah um so yeah that's kind of me i've always liked snakes ever since i was a little kid um you know had a bit of a hiatus from um well i mean it just took me a long time to get into biology really but um yeah i just had to persevere Mm. a bit and yeah eventually it all came good now i study snakes and it's pretty sweet and you do you want to say the snakes you've got oh yes that was another question do you keep snakes i do um, I have got a corn snake who, that's not the one I got when I was 10. That one sadly died, but I got another one when I was 11. She's still going. I'm 27 years old, so she's 16 now. So she's pretty much my oldest friend, which is quite nice. Um, <laughs> I've got a couple of boas. One is boa imperata, boa, and, a, and also a true red tail boa, boa constrictor. Um, they're just big, beefy, chubby, cute snakes. Uh, I'm looking around because I'm, in the room where the snakes are. I've also got a variable king snake who was a gift for Maya, my partner, uh, which got her into snakes, which was quite good, or got her more into snakes at least. And then I've also got a um, Candoya uh, Poulsonai, which is um, Solomon Island ground boa. So she's pretty awesome. And uh, she was one of the snakes which I experimented on just recently for one of the questions that we were asked, which we'll answer in a bit. (laughs) So yeah, it's not as sketchy as it sounds. How big is she now? She's not big, but she's little. She's super cute. Like she has, she's probably doubled in size since you've seen her. I'd say so. She's maybe okay. like she's maybe like two feet long. Um, but yeah, she's ah, uh, she's a funny snake. Like she's she's just every inch the ambush predator. Like any hint of movement, it's so like the the viciousness of her strikes are unbelievable. If I'm in there like changing the water, I've got to be like, whoa, it's me, it's me. And she's like, is that a is that a mouse? And it just goes crazy. <laughs> You know, she'll come flying out of there. So you've got to make sure you give her a little poke. But um, nah, she's a cool snake for sure. The old, like, she's really cool. She's like a tan. I mean, you know Ben, but I'll describe her. She's like one of the tan ones with like light tan sides and then like a dark zigzag down the back. Um, so kind of like an adder. She looks really cool with like the really pointed nose for, you know, burrowing around in the substrate and stuff. So really interesting snake for sure. So yeah, that's um, 
Oh, and a Breadles Python as well. Um, big old Breadles Python. She's called yeah. Munch. Had her for a long time too. Um, so that's yeah. like a beast of a snake. Yeah, she's a, she's a big bruiser. But she's another one that's really friendly. Um, so yeah, I haven't forgotten anyone. Yeah. So that's me. What, what, were there any other parts of the question which I haven't covered? Um, I suppose you sort of done sort of favourite species sort of oh, no, single no, I passion slash issue sort of thing. My favourite species is the eyelash palm pit viper. Bothriacus yeah. schlegeli. Schlegeli? Schlegeli. Depends. I don't know how you say it. It's definitely one of those ways. Yeah. Or maybe it's it not. Mu- <laughs> it must be one of those ways. Schlegeli. Schlegeli. Yeah. But the eyelash palm pit viper. Very cool snake. I like the bright yellow ones that are in Costa Rica. I mean, it's just a bright, solid bright yellow <sighs> pit viper. so stunning. Yeah. I'd love to go there and see one. That's like big dream. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Were there are the are there other elements to that question which I have not uh, covered? I suppose hoping oh. what what would future stuff? What would you hope to achieve in the future? Ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of one of those ones where um, I'm just really happy to be where I'm at at the moment. So getting okay. to be on a, a PhD program where I'm studying snakes was really uh, difficult, and now I'm doing it. It's so fun and it's really challenging. So at the minute, I'm just kind of enjoying this, but. Um, in afterwards I mean yeah I toy with the idea of being an academic I think it'd be really really fun but equally I'd be open to doing something else as well so yeah I think my future is a bit vague I guess but not by my own making it's kind of a difficult industry so we'll see Mm. but at the minute I'm just enjoying what I'm doing which I think is a good way to to do things anyway yeah yeah sweet so yeah um, and do I go herping for fun? Yes, I do. Not as much. I mean, to be honest, it's funny because I go herping as part of my job, um, which is ace. I love it. So I'm always, it's always fun, but I'm doing it for my PhD research. But yeah, sometimes I find time and go look for adders and stuff like that locally, which is also really fun. And um, I don't know, anytime I'm outside, I'm kind of looking for reptiles or amphibians like most of us, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a. I mean, I can jump in and answer my bit of that as well. Is I think that's what I do. When you go for a walk out and about, you're looking for animals regardless of where they are, what they are, and reptiles are very high on that list of things that you want to see. <laughs> yeah. Because you so frequently, you know, infrequently get to see them, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you're also in a place where your in, your incidence of seeing reptiles is way way higher, which I'm quite envious that of. Is true. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, also even you this morning a... there was a there was a gecko in the bathroom. Oh, that's so good. So um but you also have a big interest in birds, which I'm like slightly envious of because I think if you're interested in birds, I mean birds you just see birds non stop. That's what's really nice about it, is you can just birds no matter where you go, you can watch them or see them. I was waiting mm-hmm. at the immigration office yesterday, just out there in the sun, I thought, okay, well, I can just do some bird watching while I'm here, can't I? <laughs> there you go bits it's in science where you wait for a, a re-entry permit yeah that's wicked over to you then Ben what's uh, all right let's get some background on Ben uh, I don't have as, as deep a history with snakes as you do at all um, I mean I grew up on the on the south coast of England so I've had a nice upbringing that was filled with dinosaur chat but really school wise and things like that no nope, not really biology heavy I say didn't even do biology A level and went heavily into geography and even more so like heavily into like human side of geography too. 
It is interesting though, isn't it? Like it is like it is still to this day does interest me human geography. I did a lot of it, stuff oh, on like geographies of empire. It's really yeah. interesting. Like yeah, cultural how, geography and stuff is Yeah. Like how sinister and evil the, the British Empire was took up a lot of my time as an undergraduate and I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah no, I, I did similar stuff and yeah, undergrad was a mix for me because I went to St Andrews, so you get four years to do your degree there. You get a bit more choice when you initially go. So I was doing doing geography and doing international relations and modern history on the side. You can see as as far away from the <laughs> physical ecology side of geography as you could possibly be. But um, sort of worked my way back there by doing the more uh, physical geography aspects and just slowly but surely heading over to more like environmental geography and human relationship with natural world sort of stuff. And dissertation was about pollen. Uh, getting pollen out of peat samples to try and identify uh, past vegetation compositions on Iceland. Basically trying to show that when people turned up, all the forests disappeared. <laughs> Which, That's hey, pretty apt. What a, what a classic trend. Is that palynology? Palynology, the study of dust. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you're not selling it well there, but it actually does sound interesting. And there was people it, doing similar projects at, at my uni, actually, as well. Yeah. It is yeah. exceptionally interesting to have something that's that old and giving you a glimpse into the past of what it was like. Oh, it's, it, it still fascinates me. It's still very interesting. Um, would I want to do that lab work? No. No way. Staring through <laughs> a microscope at little bits of pollen was not the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, no. Like, There's better ways of doing that nowadays as well. You don't need to use the human eye and brain, so that's good. Yes, I'm sure there's some image J automated mm. recognition software up. Uh, out there now yeah 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 there's pollen people here at Bangor and yeah I think they do some mad stuff oh and also yeah, yeah a lot of it's like sequencing and stuff now as well isn't it you just like put it in a little hole plug it into your computer and it goes sequencing stuff <laughs> scanport <laughs> DNA yeah that is pollen from a birch tree <laughs> yeah. yes publishable results yeah but it's interesting like my undergraduate dissertation was on um, the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya right so in the 1950s in Kenya, Britain was kind of beginning to realise that holding on to Kenya as part of the empire was untenable. And uh, they, we just conducted, I say we, like it wasn't, yeah, it's weird. It's hard, you never really know which angle to take when you talk about stuff like this because it's our nation. But basically well, there was... Say it, say it in a further person with the British and yeah. then uh, you dodge that, right? Yeah, the British, um, yeah, essentially just set up like, you know, terrible concentration camps and there was a war waged against tribal people called the Kikuyu. Um, and it was just like really interesting, fascinating stuff. And my dissertation was actually about whether or not the news of the day in Britain portrayed the atrocities that were occurring honestly mm. or not. And um, yeah, like as it turned out, they did, but they dehumanized the Kenyan people in, in such a way that... It, Really, it the people really in Britain didn't mind the atrocities they yeah. were reading, yeah. Uh, which is, you know, a ghastly thing that happened. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, I just, I was really interested in all that stuff. And it's not really something we learn at school either. So it's cool to like actually, you know, get into some British history, which you don't learn because it's always like world yeah. wars, yada, yada, yada. Um, well, and that's what's nice with geography as a subject to study at university or whatnot, is it, it's, very wide-ranging, so you can get into stuff that you find genuinely interesting. And a lot of the times it is very geared towards uh, critical thinking stuff. Mm. Because geography is 
often uh, dealing with issues or problems and then, well, aiming to tackle them, right? Yeah. So it sets you up quite nicely for a lot of future scenarios, including like a conservation sort of angle. So yeah, it is interesting how we've both done that too. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of a weird coincidence. I remember when I first met you and we got onto that subject, we were like, what are we doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I felt especially out of place here because as soon as I'd done my, you know, dissertation on dust... (laughs) <laughs> um, a couple months later, I found myself out in, in Thailand, radio tracking uh, King Cobras. But there was something prior to that, wasn't there? You went to Madagascar as well, right? Yes, but that was during that was during undergrad thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, was, that was basically a, a opportunity to me. Okay, well, conservation, that seems like a pretty big issue. It uh, seems quite fundamental to human well-being is maintaining a good natural environment. Okay. Uh, basically, I wanted that to be my could I make this, is this actually something for me or is some more human geography stuff what I should be doing? And uh, that was to the, the spiny forest of southern Madagascar. And that was just astounding. That was absolutely astounding and sort of hooked me. I mean, like, okay, now I should probably see if I can make uh, make this a career or make, uh, make my career sort of more natural world orientated and yeah. more of, yeah human environment interactions that sort of angle so you kind of had the same sort of i mean it sounds like it's pretty cliche but like this like pivotal moment in the life of ben but it just came at like age 20 rather than or age 21 22 yeah i suppose yeah yeah i mean i suppose you've got to make a decision at some point at, mm. at where you're going with things some people know from a lot earlier that they've got a very clear idea and some people sort of bumble around and get lucky mm. and pick a degree that has a lot of flexibility. Yeah. And uh, then out here, Thailand, did my track in the Kings, learned a lot. Learned a hell of a lot, to be fair, about field methods and taught myself some analysis stuff, which has put me in good stead. Realised I had to sort of retrain if I wanted to do this properly. And uh, very much like you, headed back to UK. Or well, I suppose you didn't head back to the UK. You were still in the UK when you did your master's, but... I headed back to Bangor to do a quick one-year masters on uh, toe toxicity, which we talked previously about in the in the podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, came back to carry on with uh, Thailand stuff with a with a proper position. But which... the most important thing was that in the interim, when you were in Bangor, we started the podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, naturally. <laughs> So Ben would come over <laughs> to my house a lot, uh, and I would just like cook dinner for us, you know, play some video games, and then I can't remember. We were just like one day I was saying that I was kind of looking. I don't even remember how it happened, but I in fact I think basically we just had a conversation. And I was like, oh, because I, li- I listened to a lot of podcasts at that time, um, but mm. they were all kind of herpetoculture, um, which obviously I'm interested in as well. Um, but I was like, you know, there's not really like a science podcast for herpetology, which of course now there's multiple. Yeah. But but yeah, you were like, so I was like, do you want to do a podcast? And you immediately were just like, yes, like, let's do it. And so... Like, sort of why not if there's a gap? I mean... Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, we just got chatting about it. Um, and then like relatively quickly, we just got it. We just did some research. You found out all about Podbean. We got a microphone and we used to just sit in my flat and talk about reptiles. And that was like the first... Probably five or six episodes, maybe more. I, I think remember. more. I think probably yeah. more. Um, yeah, I don't know how many it was, but it was a no. good few. Yeah, it was a good few. Uh, 
Um, but then obviously eventually Ben went back to Thailand. I was still here. And so, yeah, we just now, now we do it over Skype and it, I mean, from what people say, it's not that much different. Um, <laughs> well, which is, it's what we which got. Which is nice. Because uh, I <laughs> flying back every, every two weeks to record a couple of hours of a uh, podcast. Yeah, it's a bit of a commute. It's like however many thousand miles, so... I think it was about 3,000. Yeah, but we've managed to juggle the time difference and stuff, which has been yeah. good. Um, we've got a time that works for both of us, so it's nice and early for me, and it's like afternoon, Ben's just had his lunch, so... Yes, sitting in a nice, uh, just post-midday heat. <laughs> it's so funny, because he always has to turn off his microphone before we... Turn off his microphone, his, his fan before we start, so we'll be on Skype before, and he looks, you know, he's, he's chilling, and then he turns off his fan so it doesn't affect the audio, and he just yeah, starts no, just to cooking, boil. Just sitting here cooking. <laughs> We should really. Yeah, but we did it at night, and you didn't like it as much, did you? So. At night, it's it's just as hard because um, yeah. I'm barely awake at night. Yeah, and it's nice. We get we do get the the uh, the forest sound effects occasionally in the background, which is yeah, I can hear some to geckos. The or something. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, um, yeah, you went and tracked king cobras with radio telemetry, which is just awesome. Um, and obviously, you were doing that concurrently as I was doing the pit viper thing, and it was yes. funny because our schedules were so different. Tracking king cobras is just bonkers because you know they're ranging huge distances. There, these diurnal, you know, actively foraging predators. You know, in the last episode, we talked about how far they go. You know, kilometers. Yeah, and so. Um, and there I was with Kurt, me and Kurt going out to track our pit vipers. You literally just walk to the tree where you last saw the pit viper, wave your wave your antenna around until you a, get a beep, and there it is. They don't it's do such anything. a contrasting, contrasting way of life. Yeah. So me and Kurt were just like perennially chilled, relaxed, you know, well rested. Um, and then there was the King Cobra team who were just like just run constantly ragged. shattered. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we've done four tracks on a snake today. Let's do some data analysis in the evening. Yeah. All right. Oh, crazy, crazy. But um, but yeah, it was uh, it was it's an awesome place. Sakura Environmental Research Station. So very very cool place. So yeah, you'll like to be back out there. Yes, I absolutely am. I absolutely love it. Yeah, having having snakes and stuff on your doorstep, absolutely wonderful. Mm. absolutely wonderful remember the first night I was there someone was like oh there's a crate I was like stop it there's a crate <laughs> just walked yeah, outside under the log over there yeah, yeah. yeah I just literally walked outside my bedroom there's a crate like five metres away from the door I was like this is ace um, <laughs> yeah it was very cool yeah things have calmed down currently we're in the we're just waiting for the rains to come back to coax out all the tasty amphibians mm. uh, I think we'll be getting a bit more snake activity and stuff yeah, tokays you need those... are waking up. They're running about. They're running amok. Have you seen the baby tokays yet? Have they come out? Yeah, they're about. Ah, oh, amazing! So cool. Yeah. Baby tokay geckos are so brightly coloured. It's just unbelievable. How can tails. You... They're beautiful. How can you be this cool? Um, yeah, well, I'm in the same boat. My, you know, the Escalapian snakes are all still hibernating. I was a bit worried they were going to come out last week while I was on holiday because it was 19 degrees in February, which is bonkers. But as far as I know, they didn't. So well, I yeah. hope not. Yeah, no. I <laughs> not as well, because I wasn't there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You never know. No. Um, but yeah, I think that that's us. Like, that's us. That's how we That's how we ended up doing this podcast. Yeah. Um, thanks for asking the question, Jennifer. I hope that answers it sufficiently. Um, yeah. I think so. If you want some us saying the same things in a different a different way, you can listen to Morelia Python, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some same Python information, radio. but uh, just mixed up a little. Yeah, so there was like maybe, I don't know, uh, they do a weekly episode, so it was probably like a good 10 episodes ago, but um, yeah, we were on there, so 
seek it out if you want to hear the same sort of thing again. But yeah, like you say, in a different way. Yeah. And so, should we move on to the other questions that we've been asked? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, should we start with Emily O'Brien's question? Or no, let's start with let's start with the other one. Let's start with Robin Van Dyke and then we can go okay. on to the more technically complex one after. Yeah, so this some was fun stuff for the second one. Okay, so this was a good question. So this is from, like I say, Robin Van Dyke. So thank you very much, Robin. Um, sea snakes or other snakes that spend a lot of time in the water. Do they flick their tongues when their heads are underwater? So I was thinking, ah, huh, trying to imagine having seen a sea snake underwater. And the answer is yes, they do. Um, they flick their tongues. They go around, you know, looking for fish, crustaceans. Some of them eat eggs, whatever it might be. But yes, eels. they use eels. <laughs> eels. Eels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of them eat eels. Um, and whatever it might be, they're flicking their tongues just as a land snake would. So yes, the, the, the short answer is yes. Um, sea snakes do flick their tongues when they're underwater. So that's true sea snakes. Um, Hydrophidae, that family, they do it. Um, so then, you know, that kind of spawned a journey to try and find out what other snakes do it. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, Ben, but my experience of seeing snakes underwater is pretty limited. Um, I have never seen a snake underwater. I've seen a snake <laughs> on the water. Yeah, same. I've never seen yeah. one underwater. No. Uh, not in the flesh. Actually, no, tell a lie. I have. I've seen tentacled snakes at the zoo underwater. Oh, yes. No, that is a good point. I've seen the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that led me on a journey. That's cheating, though. Yeah, that is cheating. Um, but yeah, sea crates. So they're the kind of non... They're the elapid sea snakes. So they're not true, true sea snakes. They're, you know... Elapids swim around in the water and then go onto the egg land to lay their eggs because they're embarrassed. Um, so <laughs> Did yeah, you say they're embarrassed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get it. An egg, an egg probably wouldn't fare well in the sea, to be fair. Um, but hey yeah, man, it works all right for fish. That's true. That's true. Uh, but Just yeah, so sea pebbles. <laughs> so sea crates. They, they also flick their tongues underwater. And then the tentacle snakes, which we just mentioned, which are homolopsidae. So they're the family homolopsidae. They also flick their tongues underwater. Um, and so too do elephant trunk snakes, which are acrocordidae. So they're the kind of really granular scaled, big, chunky, baggy skinned underwater weirdo snakes, um, which I think both Ben and I have got yep. a bit of a weird obsession with. They're just so odd. Um, I think we, we've, it's become a weird obsession because we wanted to do an episode about one ages and ages yeah, ago. Yeah, that's right. And then I think it's been asked for a couple more times since then by two different people. Yeah. And we just feel like there's not enough... We haven't found papers that we're willing to cover on them yet to really warrant an episode. There's not enough research about them that's current, basically, is the problem. Yeah, no, one's not, really searching, no one's really researching them in, in the manner that we want them to. No, and the little bits that there are are very sort of niche to do with certain bits of anatomy or something, which yeah. we tend not to cover as much. Mm. Yeah, we like ecology. But um, yeah, you know, they're uh, they're swimming around in the swamps and estuaries of Malaysia and places like that. So um, they're flicking their tongues underwater. And then so too are garter snakes. I found a video on YouTube of a garter snake underwater, which is a natricid snake, so natricidae. They are also flicking their tongues underwater. And I was like, oh, what about anacondas? 
Yes, anacondas. They're also flicking their tongues underwater. And so they are boidae. They're boids. Boids, however you pronounce that. So um, it's pretty widespread. And then I found a video on YouTube of a corn snake in a fish tank. And sure enough, <laughs> sure enough. Was it meant to be there? I don't know. But well, it was. I think I think it was like an enrichment thing. The owners were like, let's see what it'll do in the fish tank. And it swims around underwater. And there guess you go, what? be enriched. Yeah, it's flicking its tongue. So there you go. That's a colubrid snake flicking its tongue so uh-huh. you know that's a lot of families that's like what one two three four five six seven families of snakes there um so it seems to be that tongue flicking underwater is pretty widespread uh you know the degree to which they're getting use out of those tongue flicks and how you know how well the tongues work in water it would be a completely different thing and i couldn't find anything mm. about it written so if you're listening and you've got some knowledge on this get in touch and we'll um we'll update and so then, Ben, we were talking about vipers and you were like... We were. We basically, Ben suggested that we were both trying to think of a semi-aquatic viper and we were having a really hard time. So then I Googled it and sure enough, there is one. It's the cottonmouth, which to our American listeners will be like, duh, you idiots. But, you know, <laughs> we don't live in America. We don't see these things swimming around. We didn't know. Um, so, yeah, this is, you know, the cottonmouth, Achistrodon pisivorous, the old fish eater. And, yeah, um, I mean, even if you just gave us that name, we'd be like, oh yeah, it's probably, uh, yeah, probably it makes likes sense. water, doesn't it? <laughs> but I was unable I to find... You, unless it like looked like a fish or something like that. That would be weird. Like a fish-headed <laughs> snake instead fish of a snake-headed fish. fish. Mm. Yeah, it only goes one way, not the other. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this cottonmouth, basically it probably tongue flicks underwater, but I couldn't find any video or or anything written about it, so... It remains uncertain. Well, and I presume that probably people can't film it because when people are close to a cottonmouth, they're doing their big cottonmouth showy thing. That's right, and, yeah. And uh, they're not going to be tongue flicking while uh, while there's somebody looking at them. Yeah, so cottonmouths have that really distinctive threat display where they open their mouth and it's white and it's super frightening. Um, so, yeah. It's that, so, yeah, in short, Robin, yes, they do flick their tongues while their heads are underwater, which is really cool. So... Snakes are deadly both on land and in water, and in the sky as well. <laughs> <laughs> and underground. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, thank you very much. That was a great question. And yeah, we have another question. We do. From uh, Emily O'Brien. So the question was. So Emily had noticed that uh, her pet bull python, or royal python, as I would say, um, when he moves his head, the angle of his head, so if he's looking up or down, his pupils remain closer to perpendicular to the ground. So they're kind of staying level. Um, Mm. And Emily had noticed that in photos of other snake species, and she's read that horses and goats can do it. But how common is it among snakes? And do species with round pupils do it as well? And what about other herps? So, you know, what about um, geckos, etc., uh, frogs? And if they are doing it, why are they doing it? It's a great question. And, yeah, got both of us scratching our heads, I think. Yeah, I hadn't considered the gecko aspect, but now I have, and I realise that geckos might have more control over it than, I, than other species. Mm. Because they walk on vertical surfaces so frequently, but you don't see a gecko with his eyes sideways on a... On a surface no but i think no but um i think the thing with that is it's relevant to 
Well, we'll get into that in a sec. Bring up that point when we've given a bit yeah, more background. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I've got a logical reason why they're doing it, but it's more yeah. like it's got to be active and not passive in that case. Mm. Yeah, so um, as Emily mentioned, right, uh, grazing animals do it. So goats and uh, horses. And obviously with goats and horses, they're a completely different beast to a lizard or a snake because they are prey, not predators. And so, no, not snakes are prey? Well, yeah, okay, they're herbivores, not carnivores, we should have said. Yes. <laughs> yeah, a lot of snakes are prey. But, um, yeah, these are, like, obligately prey. Um, <laughs> obligate prey. <laughs> <laughs> and so the idea is that when the grazing animal puts its head down, um, it needs to kind of keep an eye on the horizon. And so in order to do that, the pupil is going to rotate, and that allows uh, the maximum field of view for that grazing animal looking at the horizon despite having moved its head um, and that allows them obviously to detect predators approaching from the horizon panoramically without too many blind spots and um, these are the mm. words of Professor Banks uh, in a oh, paper so you've seen the Banks paper too the, the 2015 yeah. one that's right yeah yeah that's I highly recommend people reading this paper because it's rather excellent it's so interesting and the other, the other cool thing with the, having the horizontal pupil is it's, it's maximizing their, basically, ability to see and measure distances properly uh, along the horizontal and forgetting stuff vertical. Because they're much less at risk of things coming from above them and below, but they need to be very good at traversing the terrain and spotting things coming at them terrestrially. Mm. I really like as a... It fits in so perfectly. You see a goat's yeah. eye and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Goat's eyes, side of the head as well, increasing the uh, the area they can see. Yeah. It's brilliant. But that being said, also, while we're on the, the uh, topic of horizontal eyes, Aetullas. Ah, yes. The Aetullas, different from a lot of snakes, well, in fact, all snakes, in the sense that they do have horizontal pupils and I'm not really sure why well apparently binocular vision as well yes yeah, so with Attila they've got a really weirdly shaped eye um, like you say and um, the eyes of a goat on a snake's body yeah at the back of it they've got like a big lobe it kind of like spreads out at the back the pupil yeah. and um, what is th- it's thought that um, this helps them get stereoscopic stereoscopic vision so when they're Basically, when they're looking at things, they have exceptionally good vision in front of themselves and it gives them really, really good depth perception because they are, generally they're in a, um, well, they're arboreal, so they're existing in like an extremely three-dimensional world, world, if that makes sense. And they're also hunting birds. You said it gives them binocular vision. I think stereoscopic and binocular vision are more or less the same It's exactly the same. same So stereoscopic is using the relative position from the two different eyes to calculate where the the object you're looking at is yeah. the alternative so you, is not, if you if you can't have that in the case of like goats or something you work out how far something is away from you by comparing how blurry it is to other things in your vision so you have something that's in focus that you're looking at its distance to you and to other things is calculated by the relative blurriness right yeah so so that's the case of Ayatollah. They're unusual in that they've got horizontal pupils. But also they, they're, they're unusual in that their pupils don't 
move around as they move their heads, they stay in the same place. Oh, interesting. Where, whereas, um, to kind of go back to the question a little bit, the vast majority of snakes do actually do this pupil, th- uh, you know, the pupil tries to stay level with the ground, um, or at mm. least like perpendicular to the ground. And um, there's a couple of names for this. Cyclovergence is one, or rotational optokinesis is wow. the even cooler one. And um, yeah. Just using really big words for pupil rotation. Yeah, basically. But yeah, so there was a paper, um, well, there's been a few papers one is Monroe in 1950. So this was something which was researched a lot in like the 40s and 50s, it seems like. Oh, actually, and even into the 60s, because, yeah, there was another one by Heath et al. in 1969, Rotational Optokinesis in Reptiles. And, um, Optokinesis. Yeah, yeah <laughs> essentially, um, what's going on here is in lots of different snakes, so in vipers and also in uh, boids and also in um, colubrids. Um, yep. Basically, all the snakes they looked at, both with elliptical pupils, which are the slits, and round pupils, the eye attempts to try and keep its normal or average position while the head is tilted either up or down. Yep. Um, so they can't do it completely, so there's a limit, right? They can only tip their head so far forward before the eye yeah. can't twist anymore. They don't and it have has googly to get eyes. Dragged. They don't just yeah. rattle around. <laughs> yeah, it's not like a chameleon. I don't know if a chameleon's eyes twist. Uh, it's a different thing. But um, yeah, so essentially they've got like a, a maximum downward plane and a maximum upward plane. Um, and at least for boa constrictors, um, it seems like when they're looking down, the pupil is better at matching than when it's looking up. So the maximum rotation for the pupil is higher when the snake's looking down than when the snake's looking up because the pupil is mm. twisting in the opposite direction to what the head is going in. Um, so the sort yes, of average... sense, yeah. Yeah. So Heath in 1969 found that in snakes they could go 20 to 30 degrees, twisting of the pupil. Um, turtles could do... Uh, uh, turtles could do about the same, 20 to 30. Crocodiles could do 50 degrees. And um, rhino... Mm. Coxcephalians, which is tuataras, can do um, 60 degrees. So they've got what? a mad... Yeah, they're oh man, tuataras are weird. Yeah, tuataras, they, they're, they're kind of like... They're their own thing. I mean, you just can't... you just got to treat them as their own thing. Yeah. They don't play by everybody else's rules. Yeah, I think they actually misspelled... Um, what is it? Rhinocephalia? They called it rhinocephalia in the paper. But yeah, sure it's not... Just Rinko. that they've been renamed since then. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Rhinocephalia, Rhinocephalia. Yeah, it's an old paper, so perhaps they've been renamed. But yeah, the Tuataras, they can twist their eyes like crazy. And um, yeah, like I say, and I used some of my snakes here to test this theory. And um, yeah, they're good at it. Like, the bows can do it. <laughs> you can't trick them. No, the bows can do it. Um, Lil Kandoya can do it. Uh, I couldn't tell with... Um, the king snake because he's got a round pupil so it's just like what <laughs> but yeah no that, I mean it's definitely definitely going on um, mm. as you said the reason behind it is because um, it allows them to keep tabs on the horizon right which is well, what is relevant well it, it is for the horizontal but it's it's slightly different for the vertical pupil this is, yeah. this is what's so cool is the vertical pupil is if, you, if you're working with a vertical pupil you've got a decent uh, ability to keep vertical things basically in focus but for horizontal distances you need to rely on the blur 
Right. But to have a good uh, like depth of field, like you would in, in a camera, like a like a high aperture, so a shallow depth of field and increased amount of blur, so you can easily distinguish things. You want to have a very wide open aperture. So in their case, they've gone very wide, uh, top to bottom, so to not compromise the uh, crispness of things that are vertical. Yeah. Yeah, and that is a benefit for things which are kind of predating things which are close to them. Yes, and things that if you're looking for something that's distinct from the ground vertically, i.e. a prey item, then you want to keep that vertical crisp so you can identify it, but you want to keep the horizontal blurry so you can better distinguish distance. It's crazy. That's a really good explanation. Yeah. It's actually got yeah. me thinking, as I look out the window, I use that method to work out what's near and what's far a little bit. The blurriness does tell you a lot. You never really oh, thought you about abso- it. No, you absolutely do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is what's so nice. Is it the, the paper's really quite universal. It's just, talk, you know, it's talking about cats and all sorts of different predators. This is the Banks, um, Banks et al, yeah? Yeah. But what's also nice is they have a little bit discussing that actually the blur... Uh, way of measuring distance is probably a lot better for animals that are shorter because you're relatively closer to your uh, objects of interest there's like uh, again I come back to the camera as an example you put your camera very close to something with a very wide aperture there's a greater uh, difference in depth of field than if you're much further away because the relative distance between the objects is less Right. than the distance between the objects and you. So you're closer to things, it, you get an exaggerated effect. Mm-hmm. So for things like snakes, really, really good. And mm. blur is probably the primary way that they're uh, dealing with distance, especially when a bunch of species don't have proper binocular vision. Right. And because of that, because you're dealing with vertical and horizontal, you want to keep your eye as, as close to the correct plane so you get a proper estimate of distance. If your eye's on a skew, then you're going to be compromising how crisp your item you're looking at is, as well as uh, the effect of blur. And interesting as well that, like, for example, the boa constrictor, which they use as an example, um, is better at looking down than it is looking up. And that probably yes. speaks to the fact that they're more likely to be ambushing from a slightly elevated position than they are looking up in an ambush position, which is cool. It does. It, all, it That's what's so nice about this. It makes very logical sense it's a little bit hard to get your head around being able to better distinguish things on two different planes if you think mm. you're just looking at something it's either in focus or out of focus but uh you know <laughs> it does work it's, like that and you, you've got also, this, this vertical pupil to sort of make sure that that's not compromised in uh different scenarios and there's also the, the benefit of dealing with different light levels without compromising it right it's so also yeah. Sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to give a nice comparison with the humans, where they have a we have a fifteen-fold change in the amount of light that we can let in with our pupil. But things like cats and geckos, it's one hundred and fifty to three hundred. So the flexibility in low light and things like that is hugely increased as well. So it's not. They sort of say it in the paper like it's an alternative hypothesis, but it very much sounds like it's a complementary one where you have this this flexibility to do with changeable light as well as getting the best of both worlds in terms of 
the uh, blur method of mm. uh, distinguishing distance. Yeah, so elliptical pupils are just way more high-tech than I ever realised. It, it seems that way, yeah. Mm. It seems that way. I presume that there's a, there's a sort of selection pressure not to have them and just to stick with a, what we would consider regular eye, I guess. Mm. Maybe that's cheaper. Well, yeah, isn't it got some quite a lot to do with diurnal versus nocturnal as well? It does, yeah. Yeah. So for us, yeah, I mean, we don't really need that great range because we're constantly looking at the horizon and we're also um, active strictly during the day, really. I mean, if mm. you've ever tried doddering around in the woods at night, it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, you need, you need something to help you out, for sure. Banging your shins left and right. Um, so, yeah, it's also really hard to empathise with... A different visual system it's like one of those things which is like fundamentally difficult to imagine mm, well it's because you communicate by looking at looking people in the eye and stuff and mm. when you look at something that has a w-shaped uh pupil you're more concerned about that thing's got a w-shaped pupil than trying to understand the inner workings of a cuttlefish mm. that's really deep or is it cuttlefish um, that have them or is it octopi <laughs> octopus so octopods cephalopods Octopodes. Cephalopods. I, I say cephalopods and I'm sticking with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to finish with a quote from Dr. Oh, Monroe. Can I quickly slide in something else then quickly before you... <laughs> yeah, go on then. <laughs> uh, some, some snakes, you know they've got the uh, external like ocular scale that, yeah. that's over the eye. Some of them, uh, like Chrysopilia ornata, the ornate flying snake, uh, that scale actually actively blocks UV light, so they've got like little sunglasses on. Wow! And uh, most snakes, it seems like they are sensitive to UV, but uh, some of them actively remove it to try and improve uh, visual acuity. Because if you've got a bunch of this UV light coming in, it's going to make things all brighter and blurrier, I guess, and there's yeah, like more yeah. noise. You cut it out. It's like wearing sunglasses and driving into the yeah. sun. Well, a lot of animals that CUV use it in things like communication or um, yeah some of them use it to pick out their prey but um, yeah I can imagine for a snake which isn't really socializing it could just be a hindrance <laughs> unless you get that thing isn't uh, doesn't like mouse urine glow under UV or something oh I don't know yeah maybe I don't know that's all I got some yeah. some snakes like pretty much wear sunglasses in some regard but not to protect their eyes so I wanted to finish on a quote from uh, Dr. Monroe, who published the seminal text in 1950, Vertical Orientation of the Eye in Snakes. I thought it was going to be, why do snakes have eyes? <laughs> um, so, the vertical pupil of the pit viper is usually likened to that of the cat. As in the case of the latter animal, the snake's pupil dilates with decreasing illumination. Again, like the cats, it dilates even under strong illumination when the animal is frightened, excited, or angry. <laughs> there you go. If you piss off a snake, it's going to dilate its pupil. <laughs> uh, you know what else they do? What's that? They reduce the blood flow to uh, their ocular scale so they can see better. Weird. Yeah. I uh, Do I have that? Where do I have that? There are papers somewhere about... In a Journal of Experimental Biology uh, by Van Dorn Sivak in 2013. Blood flow dynamics in the snake spectacle. Basically, yeah, 
snakes, when they're dealing with stuff, they reduce the flow so they can uh, see better. That's crazy. So yeah. they reduce the flow of blood to the lens covering their eye, to the to the scale covering their eye, the ocular scale, and that allows them to see better. That's what that paper was suggesting, yeah. I didn't even yeah. know that that's... I mean, I guess it's it, it stands to reason that it would have a blood supply because it's a living bit of tissue, but I just kind of assumed that the out, outer cell was It was, was just pure of, keratin or something. Yeah. 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 Weird. Cool. Nice Very one. Cool. Thanks for hunting that out. So, yeah, hopefully that answers your question, Emily. Um, another yeah. really insightful question about So basically snakes. saying relatively widespread... And the reason they do it is so they can keep seeing things good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, I encourage you, if you've got a snake of your own, to twist its head around in funny ways. It's very amusing. And they will do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Unless you've got something with a circular pupil. And then you'll they'll still do it, but you won't be able to tell. Yeah. Unless it's like a, a mock viper. And well, then, uh, then you've got to spook it and then quickly do it. <laughs> uh, yeah cool so I think that pretty much run that finishes our questions episode um, mm. ho- hopefully people have enjoyed it um, yeah that's our kind of story and then a few questions from our patrons if you want to become a patron and ha- ask a question then you can um, patreon.com slash herp highlights is where you've got to go for that um, yep. otherwise you can get in touch with us facebook.com slash herp highlights herp highlights at gmail.com uh, Twitter we're at Herp Highlights and if you want to enter our competition head over to our Twitter or Facebook and yeah check that out you can win a t-shirt designed by the very own Ben and it's wicked um, I'm definitely going to buy one have <laughs> 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 one made <laughs> yeah sweet anything else anything else to add uh, no I don't think so I hope we've answered people's questions sufficiently alright nice one well in that case all that remains to be said is thanks for listening Yeah, thank you for listening.